This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is part one of five of Professor Hanko's series, The Doctrine of the Antithesis. Today, he teaches about the idea of the antithesis itself. As I was saying, I'm pleased that I can speak to you tonight and in subsequent weeks on the doctrine of the antithesis. It is my growing conviction that when one speaks theologically, the most distinctive Protestant Reformed doctrine is the doctrine of the covenant. If one speaks of the calling of the people of God in the midst of the world, there is nothing more distinctively Protestant Reformed than the antithesis. In fact, it seems to me when I read the ecclesiastical press and watch what is taking place in the church world today, that there is almost no mention even of the term antithesis, and I suspect that far and away the majority of the members of the church would be at a loss even to explain what the antithesis means and why it is important in the life of the people of God. It is, however, from the very beginning of our history, a uniquely Protestant Reformed term. If you would page through the early issues of the Standard Bear, you will discover that time and time again, the term antithesis is to be found, both in its English and in its Dutch form, when much of the Standard Bear was written in Dutch. That was partly because of the fact that prior to 1924 already, when the Common Grace controversy was at its height, Reverend Huxma predicted that if the doctrine of common grace was adopted by the Christian Reformed Church as it was, the truth of the antithesis would be lost. He was right. Subsequent events have proved him correct. I say that the distinctive doctrine of the Protestant Reformed Churches is the doctrine of the covenant while in the field of the calling of God's people, the distinctive term to describe their walk is they live a life of the antithesis. There is a relationship between these two, I'm convinced. There is such a close relationship between the doctrine of the covenant and an antithetical walk that it is impossible to hold an erroneous view of the covenant and at the same time maintain an antithetical walk in the midst of the world. Equally so, the truth of an antithetical walk as set forth in unmistakably clear language in the sacred scriptures is inescapably tied to the truth of the covenant. That was one reason why I ask the chairman for this evening to read the uh, 2 Corinthians 6 
And I had in mind especially the last chapters of those verses in the first chapter, the first verse of chapter 7. If you will, I'd like to have you look at those once again with me for just a few moments to notice how in that passage the doctrine of the antithesis is inescapably tied to the doctrine of the covenant. Paul begins that sharp description of the antithesis in verse 14 when he admonishes the Corinthians, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then he asks a series of questions, the point of which questions are, is to define as clearly as possible the fundamental differences that exist between the people of God and the wicked world. What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord, that is harmony, hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with the idols? And then suddenly, after asking that series of pointed and disturbing questions, he goes into a brief description of the doctrine of the covenant. The temple of God has no agreement with idols. Ye are the temple of the living God. And, of course, that reminds all of us that in the old dispensation, the, the temple of Solomon and Zerubbabel were pictures of God's covenant fellowship with his people in which he took up his dwelling in their midst. And then you have that covenantal language that is found throughout both the Old Testament and the New. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's covenantal language. Therefore, the admonition flows from it. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you. That's covenantal language again. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. What does that mean? It means this. Having therefore these promises, that is the promises of God's covenant, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So, as we discuss the truth concerning the antithesis in this evening session and in the coming weeks, I want to do that from the viewpoint of the truth of God's covenant. 
the implications of that precious doctrine of God's covenant, which is our unique inheritance for our walk in the midst of the world. Tonight, I'm going to be somewhat doctrinal, to lay the doctrinal foundation for our discussion. But in the three weeks that lie ahead, I intend to be as intensely practical as it is possible for me to be and show you how the truth of the covenant touches upon every aspect of our life. I say that the doctrine of the antithesis is almost uniquely Protestant Reformed. I ask you for yourselves. Where do you hear the term today? Where do you read of it? Does anybody talk about it? Do conservative evangelicals ever mention the antithesis? If they do, it has an entirely escaped me. Do Calvinists, professing Calvinists, even ever speak of the doctrine of the antithesis and its meaning for the life of the child of God? Perhaps the most conservative evangelical magazine that is published in America today, a magazine with which all of you, or many of you at least here, are familiar, the magazine World, though it boasts of its conservative stance on doctrine and on the life of the believer in the world, praises to the skies at every opportunity professional baseball and football and basketball players who consistently desecrate the Sabbath and has in almost, if not every issue, a section that deals with an evaluation of current movies. That's World Magazine. One of the outstanding Calvinists, evangelical Calvinists, who has written books in defense of Calvinism, and whose writings have been extremely influential in our land and abroad, nevertheless, can hardly wait to get out of church on Sunday morning so that he can drive to the golf links and get in his Sabbath 18 holes of golf. That's the state of the antithesis in our country among the most conservative evangelical and Calvinistic churches. It is my thesis that it is impossible to maintain the antithesis as the scriptures require it of us without the truth of God's covenant. With those introductory remarks, I want to get at the meaning of the doctrine. And I want to get at it by way of contrast with corruptions of the doctrine of the antithesis through the history of the Church of the New Dispensation. Before I do that, however, I want to call your attention to the term itself, antithesis. 
And I want to call your attention to that because, interestingly enough, and I'm at a loss to explain how it happened, the etymology of that word has been incorrectly uh, published even on the pages of our standard bear. Let me just demonstrate that for, uh, to you for a moment. I wouldn't be so concerned about it, but last August, when Professor Engelsma and I were talking about the implications of the doctrine of the covenant for all areas of life, and trying to demonstrate how the doctrine of the covenant led to the antithesis in the home and in the church and in society, one rather astute woman, who as a matter of fact lived in France, called attention to that word and said to us, to me particularly because I was using the word quite frequently, how do you dare to use that term? She says, it's not in the Bible. And I read somewhere in the standard bearer that that term means to be against God. And she pointed out the, the fact that in the standard bear, a given article had said that anti is the Greek word which means against. And thesis is the Greek word thetos, which means God. So she says the term means to be against God. How can you use that as a, as a term to describe the Christian life? I recall distinctly that she was not misinterpreting the standard bear because it was vivid in my memory that at a young people's convention many, many years ago, before even, not only before I was married, but before I even knew my good wife, there was a young people's convention that used as its theme the term the antithesis. And the first speaker used this definition of the term. that he said antithesis was not a good term to use because it meant literally to be against God. There's a mistake there. I don't know how it happened, but this is not true, that the term antithesis comes from these two Greek words. It does come from this word, and this Greek word certainly means against, but this part of the word does not come from the Greek word theos, which is the Greek word for God, but comes from another Greek word, which really is, well, let me put it in, in the English. This part of the term comes from a Greek word which is, which means tithemi, tithemi, not theos, the Greek word for God. This word means to place. And so the, the word antithesis really means to place over against. That's the, the etymology of that term. So don't, don't, if you ever see that in the standard bear in, in an article, and you will find it there, apparently that French woman found it, that's a mistake. This is the etymology of that Greek word antithesis. And that's the true meaning too. That's how it has been used in the church of Jesus Christ. 
Now, in the history of the Church of the New Dispensation, there have always been two fundamental threats to the doctrine of the antithesis. Two fundamental threats to the doctrine of the antithesis. You could almost call those two threats a right-wing threat and a left-wing threat. One attack on the doctrine of the antithesis on the right, another attack on the doctrine of the antithesis on the left. The doctrine on the right, or the error on the right, was the error of Roman Catholicism. I'm not going to speak at length about that because I don't really think that that error of Roman Catholicism is such a grave threat to the church today and certainly not to us. The error of Roman Catholicism is, however, that the doctrine of the antithesis means world flight. The theoretical basis for this doctrine is, as the Roman Catholic Church for centuries has maintained it, that the creation of God itself is evil. How that came about in Roman Catholic thought is an interesting study in its own right. It has its roots in two phenomena that appeared in the early history of the church. One was the heresy of Gnosticism, and the other one was monasticism. This uh, periodic appearance of monasticism that goes way back to the third century. But the point was that Roman Catholicism spoke of the Christian life and the purity of the Christian life being on its highest level and being most acceptable to God if one would separate himself from the world and crawl into a cave in the desert or into the cold and dank cell of a monastery and deny himself all the things of this present world and all the pleasures of this pleasant, uh, present time. That was Roman Catholicism. That's the theory undergirding all of monasticism until the present. As Reverend Hutzema pointed out in more than one article in the Standard Bear, that evil of Roman Catholicism establishes an antithesis between nature and grace. Grace, the grace that delivers us from the evil world, delivers us from the creation. And he who escapes the creation can live by starving himself. He is the one that lives on the highest plane of holiness and morality. Even the institutions of creation are institutions to be shunned by one who really wants to live on the highest level of holiness, as, for example, Roman Catholic vows of celibacy. They place a person on a higher level of morality than the ordinary child of God. That's not only a mistake, but it is a serious, and as I hope to show you in later speeches, a very wicked error. It's contrary to what the apostle himself writes in 1 Timothy 4. 
Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, that is in the new dispensation, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Paul equates that view of the antithesis, which Rome holds, as being the product of seducing spirits and being a doctrine of devils. That's serious business. They speak lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God, and now comes the point that Paul is making, why, the, why this is so evil, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. That's the apostle's description of God's creation. This is God's world, it's good. No one may call it evil without calling God himself evil who created it, and without calling Christ evil who redeemed it. That's a grievous, grievous error and one that is a denial of the antithesis because it establishes the antithesis between the creation and the work of salvation by grace. The second error is more familiar to us and more uh, a greater threat to our well-being, and that is the error of common grace. I want briefly to talk about that because its influence on us is noticeable in some instances. And if we are to understand the doctrine of the antithesis and rightly apply it to life, we've got to know that some positions frequently held by some within our churches is basically a view of common grace. I'm not talking now about the common grace of the well-meant gospel offer that is embedded in the first point that was adopted by the Synod of Kalamazoo in 1924. But I am talking about the second and third points. You will recall, if I may refresh your memories briefly, the second point had to do with the internal operation of the Spirit of Christ that restrained sin. The third point had to do with the subsequent good that unregenerate man was capable of doing because of the internal operation of the Spirit. Now Kuiper's thesis was this. In order to understand Kuiper's view of common grace, you've got to understand in the first place that Kuiper began with his development of common grace with what is called the cultural mandate that is given in Genesis 1, where God said to man, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. 
that subdue it. That was the big thing in Kuiper's mind. Kuiper said that the fall had this consequence for the human race, for Adam and the human race, that if God had not intervened with his common grace, the creation would have become a wasteland and man would have become a devil or an animal. And the cultural mandate would have become impossible of being carried out. But now, at the very beginning, immediately after the fall, God intervened with common grace. And effectively, by his common grace, stopped the inroads of sin to such a point that the cultural mandate, which was given to Adam, could now be carried out in a measure. Sinful, unregenerate man, because of the effect and power of common grace, could carry out the cultural mandate and subdue the earth. Now, the problem with that is that not, not so much, let me say this first of all, not so much that wicked, unregenerate man has the ability to subdue the creation. He has. There isn't any question about that. We see it every day around us. Every time you turn on your radio or your television set, you're using something which is the product of man's ability to subdue the earth. Every time you talk on the telephone, it's the same thing. Every time you haul your cell phone out of your pocket, and speak with someone on the other side of the country in a little gadget that's about that big. That's a product of man's ability to subdue the earth. That isn't the problem. The problem is that Kuiper said that this was possible only because of grace. Common grace, yes, but grace for all that. And because it was possible because of grace, the product of man was good in the sight of God. In fact, if you read Kuiper's Stone Lectures, in those lectures, Kuiper goes so far as to say, the products of man's efforts to subdue the earth are of such value that they will even be preserved for the new creation where all the fruits of common grace will be incorporated into the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, his three-volume work on common grace the speaks so extensively of the power of common grace to enable man to subdue the earth that you hardly read anywhere at all in all three volumes about saving grace so that you get the impression as if common grace is the thing while saving grace occupies a position of secondary importance. Now, there was a reason why Kuiper adopted that kind of a theory of common grace, and that reason was this. Kuiper had a vision in his own mind of the Dutch Reformed churches as being national churches. Now, a national church is a church where the entire population of a country belongs to that denomination. 
Every baby born in the country has to be baptized in the church. Every marriage has to take place in the church. Every funeral has to be conducted in the church. The church is responsible for the morality of every citizen within the boundaries of its kingdom. The state is responsible for every citizen and his moral life. Where you have that sort of a situation, you have a country which obviously is composed of believers and unbelievers, regenerate and unregenerate, who nevertheless are all under the dominion of the state and are forced by virtue of the state's decrees to be a part of the church. This was the view of the church in England. This was the view of the church in Scotland. This was the view of the church to a certain extent in Geneva when Calvin held sway there. That creates a problem. If you would read chapter 1 of Sin and Grace, the book authored by Henry Danhoff and Hermann Huxema, you would discover that in the first chapter, Henry Danoff calls attention to the fact that that sort of a view denies the antithesis and denies the antithesis because it denies election and reprobation. It doesn't find within the national boundaries of a country election and reprobation. So firmly did Kuiper hold to that view that when he led his reformatory movement out of the state church, the so-called Dolerende movement in 1886, he refused to join the churches that had come out of the state church under de Kock and Van Ralty and Brummelkamp because, in his judgment, the churches of the Ufskiting or the separation of 1834 had committed the fatal error of denying that the church in the Netherlands was a state church. And that's why Danhoff, in chapter one of the book that I just mentioned, Sin and Grace, speaks of the Ufskiting in glowing terms as a genuine reformation of the church because it established a church independent of the state. Kuiper was opposed to the union between the Dolianci and the Ufskiting almost till the time when the union took place in 1892, on that very ground, and then he only grudgingly went along. Kuiper had a dream, had a vision, and the vision was this, that the Netherlands was the cradle of the Reformed faith, and that because the entire country under the dominion of the state would maintain the Reformed faith in all of its implications, the Netherlands would become the fountainhead of a mighty stream of reformed thinking that flowed from the Netherlands to all parts of the world with the help of the Dutch West Indies and Dutch East Indies trading companies. And the whole world would be conquered for Christ by the force and power of the reformed faith as it came out of the Netherlands. The early uh, immigrants, not of the Ufskating now, but of the Kuiper movement in the latter part of the 1800s, 
held that vision of America. They were going to make America the Reformed faith, a nation that held to the Reformed faith. All because of common grace. You had to explain, you see, how it was possible in a country like the Netherlands for the people of God and the unbelievers to cooperate in a common venture. How could the nation as a whole cause the Reformed faith to be propagated throughout the world unless believers and unbelievers would cooperate together? The basis for cooperation is common grace. That was Kuiper's view. Now that's still the view that's taught in the major Calvinistic colleges in America today. It's taught in Dort. It's taught in Calvin. It's held high there as the essence of Calvinism. This is the only part of Calvinism, uh, of, of Kuiper, that these institutions are fond of. If you talk in Calvin or in Dort of the uh, Kuiper's view of uh, particular grace, and his emphasis on the particularity of the atoning sacrifice of Christ and his denial of the well-meant offer. Nobody knows that Kuiper, but they all know the Kuiper of common grace. Reminds me of Luther, who when he was chiding Erasmus from quoting, for quoting from the old church fathers in support of his free willism, Luther said of Erasmus, all you do is Erasmus is pick out the manure and you leave the pearls lie. That's the way Kuiper is treated too. The Kuiper of particular grace is unknown. The Kuiper of common grace is extolled. And this is the origin of all of this teaching. We have to make this world a better place to live. We have to go out and make every institution of society subservient to the rule of Christ. We have to have Christian political parties. We have to have Christian schools not to teach covenant children the doctrines of the scriptures, but in order that from these schools may go forth an army of students armed with the weapons that will vanquish every foe and make America not only but all the world the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Pro rega, said Kuiper, and the for the king, for Christ. And that's the echo that sounds in what are supposed to be Calvinistic schools because of Kuiper's Arminianism. Now I find this, and this is the part that is to me worrisome, I find this among, in the thinking of some of our people. I find it, for example, in this kind of talk why can't we cooperate with unbelievers to oppose the evils of abortion? Isn't abortion a terrible thing? Isn't abortion murder? Aren't we opposed to it? Why can't we join with unbelievers in opposing it? As homosexuality grows in the land and as it is more widely held by the populace and more widely promoted? Why can't we join forces with unbelievers to do our best 
to prevent such evils from taking over. When pornography becomes as common as reading the daily newspaper on the internet or in magazines or in books, why can't we join forces with the ungodly to keep pornography off from the internet, to close down stores where pornographic magazines are sold, to stop houses of prostitution from flourishing in red light districts, Aren't we opposed to all these things? What's wrong with joining forces with unbelievers when they hold to the same position? It is my firm conviction that that is, as a matter of fact, fundamentally Kuyperian. And let me say it right now, the antithesis means, if it means anything at all, that the life of the Christian is different from, contrary to, at enmity with, and at total odds with the life of the world at every single point. I'm not exaggerating when I say that if the people of God live the life of the antithesis, their laughter is different from the laughter of the wicked and for different reasons. Their weeping is different from the weeping of the world and for different reasons. We weep, Paul says to the Corinthians. Oh yes, we do. But we do not weep as those who have no hope. That's a fundamental difference. Every, every action of the Christian, if he lives the life of the antithesis as God's covenant people is different, so fundamentally different that there can be, as Paul puts it, no communion between light and darkness, no concord between Christ and Belial, no part of any kind between believer and the infidel. No agreement, not even in fighting evils current in our land, between the temple of God and idols. There is no area that is common in the field of morality between the righteous and the wicked. We must not talk that way. I urge that upon you. We must not talk that way. We must not talk because it's a denial of the antithesis of being equally concerned with wickedness in this world and being willing to cooperate with unbelievers in an effort to erase it. That's Kuyperian common grace, whether we like to admit it or not. What is the antithesis from a positive point of view? How do we steer between the left wing of common grace in the church and the right wing of world flight in the church? What's the line that scripture marks out for us as being the essential idea of the antithesis? I'm going to talk about the antithesis as in all reformed thinking, we have to begin with God. 
And beginning with God, we have to emphasize the fact that the antithesis has its origin and source in God's determination to reveal himself in the highest and best possible way. We have to stop, we have to start with God's revelation of himself. And you must remember that when God determines from all eternity to reveal himself, he determines to reveal himself in the highest possible way. That is, he determines to reveal himself in a way that most clearly, most perfectly, most fully reveals the infinite blessedness and majesty and glory of his own divine being. Now we all know, and I want to come back to that, although I don't want to talk about it now, that that revelation is through Christ. Christ is the fullness of the revelation of God. However, and I'll come back to this in a moment, however, the revelation of God in its most pristine, in its most emphatic, most blessed way is the revelation of God's infinite perfections against the background of imperfection and of sin and of darkness. That's the whole point of, of uh, Scripture when it talks about light versus darkness. Perhaps an illustration will make that clear. If you have a very bright searchlight, I don't care how bright it is, maybe it, it was a, a searchlight that was as bright as these searchlights that were used in World War II in order to shine on enemy aircraft and make them visible objects of anti-aircraft fire. If you shine that bright spotlight, that bright light, at high noon, you can't even see it. You don't even know it's on. It's only if you shine that in the darkness, in the middle of the night, that that light is visible and that that light accomplishes its purpose. And that's the idea of God's revelation of himself. If he is to reveal himself in the highest possible sense of the word, he only can reveal himself as the perfect light of his holiness is contrasted with the darkness of sin and unrighteousness. That's the heart of the antithesis. Light is set over against darkness. Now you understand immediately that that means that as a matter of fact, you cannot hold to the doctrine of the antithesis without holding to the sovereignty of God and without holding to that fundamental truth which Isaiah sets down. I have created the darkness. All that happens in creation is under the sovereign control of God for the purpose 
of God revealing himself in the highest possible way. That sovereignty of God over sin, over the fall specifically, first of all in heaven and then here on earth, is not a sovereignty that overrides and negates man's responsibility for his sin. And in fact, it is that remarkable fact that although God is sovereign over sin, man is still responsible that makes the sin of which man is guilty the proper background for the full revelation of the grace and holiness and perfection of God in Jesus Christ. Just as soon as you say revelation in the highest possible sense, you are saying light versus darkness. The light can be seen and understood only as it shines in the darkness. That's John 1, isn't it? That magnificent passage in John 1 where Christ is described. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. By Him, that is, by the Word, were all things made. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And the light shines in the darkness. That's the Word. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. When you have said that, the whole of history and the antithesis as a part of history is to be explained in terms of God revealing himself in the highest possible sense of the word. Because it is a matter of light versus darkness, it is a matter of sovereign election and reprobation. I'm going to give you a list of some fundamental points that belong to the doctrine of the antithesis without which the doctrine of the antithesis is impossible. The first is election and reprobation. This is why Danhoff objected to Kuiper's view of a national church. He says, Kuiper makes the antithesis not between election and reprobation, which election and reprobation cuts right through the citizens of the Netherlands and divides them, the one from the other, but Election and reprobation in some strange and indescribable sense of the word has to be between the nation of Holland, that little country that was rescued from the sea, which became the cradle of the Reformed faith, and the whole rest of the world. That's where the antithesis has to lie, and that's where ultimately election and reprobation is carried out, except as the stream of the Reformed faith flows from the Netherlands throughout the world, reprobation is put to flight by the doctrine of election. Danoff points out, and correctly so, election and reprobation divides the citizenry of the Netherlands. And it divides it so absolutely and so completely 
that that decree of God defines the antithesis and creates it in every respect. Read Genesis 3.15, where God, in speaking to Satan, speaks of the mother promise. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Who are they? Who are they? Who are thy seed and her seed? Thy seed are the reprobate. Her seed are the elect in Christ. That's where the dividing line comes. God's decree announced already. There's election and reprobation in Genesis 3.15. As God makes it clear to the devil who knows it and to Adam and Eve via his speech to the devil. Second thing is that has to be considered in connection with the antithesis is the work of Christ. Now I want to say just a couple of things about that as quickly as I can. First of all, this means here that God reveals himself in the highest possible sense of the word as the light shining in the darkness through Jesus Christ. That's John 1. In the second place, that means that election and reprobation are decrees that can never be separated from Christ and are indeed made in connection with Christ. For as Paul, especially in Ephesians, but in his other epistles as well, never wearies of saying, we are elect in Christ. There is no election apart from Christ and the work of Christ. Christ is the elect, the head of the church, the savior of the body. Election includes Christ. Furthermore, the work of Christ is decisive because of the fact that the decree of election and reprobation was carried out, I should say fundamentally and principally, on Calvary. When Christ died, That was really election and reprobation. The thief that was with Jesus in paradise that same day and the thief that went to hell. The cross stands in the middle of the stream of history. And as the whole of the human race from the beginning to the end of time flows over Calvary as of necessity it must, the cross stands as the dividing line so that it divides between the elect who are saved by the blood of the cross and the reprobate who are damned. Jesus himself says that the power of the cross is the power of election and reprobation. On the one hand, he speaks of the fact that he lays down his life for his sheep, his sheep. But on the other hand, in scathing words, he says, now has come the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. And he's talking about his cross. That's what the cross accomplishes. Election and reprobation, sovereign and eternal in the decree of God, is realized fundamentally in the cross when Christ sheds his blood for his people. You see how one by one, any kind of a denial of any of these points simply destroys the antithesis. 
and makes the antithesis invalid and of no concern to the people of God. In the third place, the work of Christ on the cross includes the work of Christ in his exaltation. I find this uh, probably one of the least understood points, least understood by those who do not really want the doctrines of election and reprobation. When Christ was exalted at the right hand of God, because of his perfect work on Calvary, and because of his powerful resurrection from the dead, Christ is given by God authority and power to rule over everything. I mean, all that God has determined to do in his counsel from all eternity, embracing all that happens in heaven and in the world of the angels, and all that happens on earth in the world of men, all that happens in the heavenly creation, all that happens in the earthly creation, and everything that takes place in hell is given to Christ to execute. Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings. Christ rules over all the works of God. Christ who is privy to the eternal counsel of God because he is himself God, he is entrusted with the authority of executing God's counsel over all the works of his hands. But there, right there in the rule of Christ you have the reality of the antithesis because the rule of Christ is of two kinds and genuinely reformed theology has always distinguished therefore between the rule of Christ's power and the rule of Christ's grace. The rule of his power is over all, to accomplish the decree of reprobation as it was executed in the cross. The rule of his grace is the rule that he exercises over his people by making them subjects to him and servants in his kingdom. There is a series of articles, I tried to find them, but I couldn't lay my hands on them. A series of articles that were written years ago in the Reformed Journal by Dr. Henry Staub, professor of philosophy in Calvin College. Um, perhaps the best professor I had in my four years in Calvin. But an ardent common grace man for all that. He wrote a series of articles about this very question of the rule of Christ. I think, I, cannot, I couldn't find the book in my own library, although I was almost sure I had it, but I think that that series of articles was later published in a book that he put together on the subject of Christian ethics. If any of you knows of that book, I certainly would like to have you stop by and Tell me what the title of it is and where it can be found. We maybe have it in the seminary library. I haven't had a chance to look yet. Uh, 
If I uh, can find it, I'll let you know. But he denied this. He said it was wrong to speak of the rule of Christ's power over the reprobate and the rule of Christ's grace over the elect because the rule of Christ's power over the wicked was also a rule of grace, be it common grace. Now I submit to you that if you do that and deny this fundamental distinction, you don't have any antithesis left. And that's what common grace does. The rule of Christ's power is simply this, that if I may put it as bluntly as I can, Christ takes the wicked by the scruff of the neck and in spite of all their rebellion, makes them, because of his universal power, serve the purpose of God as the black, dark, awful background against which shines in all of its splendor and glory the light of the holiness and infinite perfection of the triune, eternal, infinitely blessed God. That's how Christ executes the antithesis. Now, there are a lot of things to say about that, and I'm not going to say anything more. But I want to point out to you that this is exactly what the world is all about. If I may put it now in a little bit different framework of thought, when Adam fell, this world plunged itself into a morass of sin. The fall did not make man become an animal or a devil, as Kuiper maintained. Not at all. He remained man, but totally depraved and sinful man, a rebel against God, who hated God, who is still capable of subduing the creation because he's a rational, moral creature but who uses this creation for his own devilish ends and makes the powers of the creation serve in the battle to put God off his throne and make this world the kingdom of Satan. God won't let that happen. He won't let it happen in heaven where Satan began his terrible work. He won't let it happen on earth. And so, as it were, God, if I may put it that way, by the power of his grace, as if it were from a foreign land, invades our universe. As a mighty force from outside of it, from a distant land, a land that we know nothing about and cannot know nothing about because it belongs to the heavenly. He sends his angels already in the old dispensation as shock troops in order to announce to everybody God maintains his claim on his world and he will not let it go. And he will send one someday who will tear this world out of the clutches of, the, of Satan and make it that perfect world where all is the revelation of the glory of God. And then when the shock troops, as it were, of the old dispensation, time and time again, from a distant land of which no one knew, spoke of the purposes of God, God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, entered into this dreadful, terrible, sin-cursed world where wicked men are intent 
on destroying the purpose of God and set his cross right in the middle of history and suffered and died to pay the debt, the debt of sin and guilt of his elect, of his elect angels, of the heavenly creation where the angels live, and of the earthly creation. He died for it all. And he died for it all that he might become the head of it all. Not now some certain angel, the head of the angelic world, and another and man, the head of the earthly world, but Christ, who is the head of the redeemed creation and of the redeemed human race and of the elect angels and of the redeemed heavenly creation for which he shed his blood. He came from heaven. He planted his cross right here in this world to stake out the claim. This is God's world. And then he rose from the dead, triumphant and victorious, with a resurrection that in its very nature took place, both in this world and in heaven. Because if you wanted to see the resurrection, you couldn't see it by the door of the grave of Joseph of Arimathea. You had to be in heaven, on heaven's side, because the grave opened a new way out of death. A door that opened into heaven itself. And so he is, says Paul, the firstborn of the dead, preparing a way that all his elect may follow him out of death and hell through the grave into the glory that is Christ's. And so from that position in heaven which he now occupies, he is sovereign over all. He is the captain of the salvation of his elect, but he is also the sovereign general of all the heathen. That's Psalm 2. A psalm that I can never read without the cold shudders going up and down my back. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us cast their bands from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Why? I have set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. I have sworn the decree. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. That's why. They all, in all their rebellion and hatred, simply serve the purpose of God. The forces, the forces from an alien world that have invaded this planet are the powers of Jesus Christ and the armies which he leads from victory to victory as he conquers indeed the wicked and puts them to everlasting flight and claims this creation for God. But not in this sin-cursed world. And you and I don't want it here. The post-millennialists with their dreams may speak of all the world becoming the kingdom of Christ. I don't want that kingdom because I'm a sinner 
And as long as I am in this world, I'm going to be a sinner. And an everlasting life of sin has no appeal to me at all. But he died to deliver this creation from sin and me and you and the church, the company of the redeemed, so that it may be lifted out of the curse of death and brought into the perfection of heaven. And then the light of heaven shines against the dark background of the justice of God and his anger against sin and the everlasting suffering of the wicked. Now, the antithesis means and when you look at it that way, it's the most wonderful thing in the world. God, God takes his people and he says, you are my covenant people. I reveal to you the riches of my infinite perfections and blessedness through Jesus Christ. And I reveal all these things to you by taking you into my own covenant life that I live in myself as the triune God. I make you blessed. I am your God. You are my people. We dwell together in fellowship, blessed fellowship. But you must spend some time in the world. You will go to heaven but you must spend some time in the world. I give you the privilege of representing the cause of my covenant and of my glory and of the honor of my name and of my blessedness in this world of sin and darkness so that when all the world in its subduing of the creation says, we make this world ours, and God be damned. And they say it literally. The child of God says, no, you're all wrong. This kingdom is, this world is Christ's and God's. And we represent God's cause. And when the world in its fury says, we'll kill you for saying that, the church says, kill us if you will, because we have a sure victory. The cause of God is simply being fulfilled. He's realizing his purpose to reveal himself that he may have all the glory and praise. We insist Christ is king. And we will not only say that and shout that from the housetops, but we will live as citizens of his kingdom and as his covenant people in the world. That is the antithesis. Our heavenly God and Father, we are grateful to thee, grateful beyond our ability to express it in words. For the gloriously blessed privilege which is given to us of grace in Jesus Christ, to be the representatives of the cause of thy covenant in a world of darkness and sin, to speak of thy glory, to witness to the power of thy grace, 
in a holy and godly life, to insist, confident of victory, that Christ is king, that wickedness will be punished, that the armies that march under the banner of the cross go from victory to victory in the cause of the captain of their salvation. Thankful for that privilege and confident of the victory that is ours through faith, may we strive earnestly in every part of our life to walk as children of thy covenant. We thank thee for this evening. Bring us together again next week as we talk about the antithesis in the church. And may we think on these things and give all praise and glory to thee. Forgive our sins for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.